A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode in a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic show. I'm MC, and I'm here with... This is Andy. And this is David. Today we're talking about The Witch. The original air date was March 17th, 1997. It was directed by Stephen Craig and written by Dana Rustin in their only times working in the Buffyverse. This is the third episode of the show, but it's kind of the second one because the pilot was two hours. So this is kind of the first time we're getting a good look at the universe outside of things involving the Master and vampires. Yeah, and we're also not getting vampires yeah there's no vampires at all like sometimes you do have an episode where there's other stuff but you'll have like a random vampire yeah in later seasons of course you'll have the arc not even angels spoiler alert Whereas here, there are episodes where there's nothing for the whole master arc that will conclude at the end of the season. Did we like the episode? I really did like this episode. I think when I first watched it, I wasn't too sure about it. I think maybe part of it was that I was so not a cheerleader. It got a little too heavy on the wanting to get into that world. But watching it back now, it's like it introduces the idea of witchcraft to the Buffyverse. And I also see that, wow, is this so not actually about cheerleading? It's about Buffy trying to get a normal life. It's about Buffy's relationship with her mother. It's about Giles fighting with Buffy about the normal life versus the Slayer life. So yeah, no, I really do like this episode. I It's really quaint, honestly, looking back at it. It's got a lightness, and I don't remember how I felt about this episode the first time I saw it. I may not have seen it in its first run because I hadn't quite been like, okay, this is the show, this is the show. I sort of got there a little later at the end of the season. So I'm not sure if I saw this the first time around or I saw it when it was on VHS tape after it had been released that way. But I find this episode pretty charming. For all the stuff about, you know, mothers and daughters, which is really important, it's kind of light. And I noticed uh, cinematography-wise, it definitely has a light lighter feel than that incredibly visually dark first two episodes. Yeah, it does. It is a brighter episode than the introductory episodes. Yeah, overall, I've always found this episode just to be really, like you said, quaint and fun. I think this episode, we really start to get an idea of what the dynamic of the Scooby gang is going to be because we don't barely see them together in Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest. Right. It's only towards the end of the episode that we see them. But here we see them meshing as friends. We see Giles fighting with Buffy. It's like, Buffy, don't do a thing. Buffy's like, I'm going to do a thing. And then it turns out that it's cheerleading. You really start to get the idea of how these characters are going to interact with each other for the next seven years. And they explicitly become a team here. I mean, they specifically say, we're a team, right? Yeah. It's like, you're the Slayer the and Slayer-ets. we're the Slayerettes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, these first couple episodes, this first season, Giles is this slightly histrionic, like, you know, <laughs> I've like that you enslave yourself to this cult. That cold open is really sets the tone up, I think, in many ways 
of what this show is going to be like consistently, especially for the first couple of seasons, there's a lot more humor. This episode does give me one of my life mottos. And Mm -hmm. that's actually, surprisingly enough, it's a Xander line. And it's, I laugh in the face of danger, then I hide till it goes away. (laughs) I think that's actually on my Facebook description of me, possibly. I can't remember. That's actually on mine, too. (laughs) It was there at one point. I don't know if it's still there, but I know I've, I've had that quote on many different things that I have owned. Yeah, Xander's just driving me crazy now as an adult. He did not drive me nearly as crazy when I was watching this the first time. He's particularly noxious in this episode. I do have some notes about that. The whole bracelet thing, like, oh. what the fuck was up with that? Oh, like, God. It's like, I'm going to brand you as mine without telling you. I literally wrote, oh, God, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much where he's just really awful. He's like, uh <laughs> I also noted at some point when Buffy's under the curse, you know, I said she's she really clearly is out of it if she thinks that Xander is not like other boys yeah. in this episode. It's like, no, no, he really is. <laughs> but it gives me so much glee because he's given that whole speech to Willow about how she's like, she's not like a girl. She's like a boy. And then Buffy does the exact same thing back right. to him. He does get shot down. He gets shot down so much. He doesn't listen to getting shot down ever. No. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you can write some of it off as being a teenage boy. But at the same time, this is the creator avatar. And mm-hmm. I do love Joss Whedon. I know he gets a lot of criticism and some of it is very warranted. But I do continue to really enjoy Joss Whedon. But as a creator avatar, I'm sort of like, really, Joss? What? And this is our third episode now and our third time ranting about Xander. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of that comes from the fact that Xander is a ginormous character in this show to start with. I mean, you kind of forget. I mean, he's always an important part of the show, but later on, Willow becomes such an important part of the show that still at this point, she's kind of just there with this unrequited crush on Xander she and Buffy really haven't developed their bond yet. So it's really kind of Buffy and then Xander and then everybody else. Yeah. The bond is definitely forming. Buffy is cautioning them about not getting involved. Yeah. At the very beginning of the episode, she's like, no, you guys don't have to do that. I can handle this on my own. And that's when Willow says, but you're the Slayer and we're the Slayerettes. So it is not a fully formed relationship yet. It'll definitely get there very quickly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that hasn't 100% developed. But Xander, yeah, Xander really is all over these first couple episodes in a really major way that I think you do forget about it as you move along in the journey of all of them. Well, I think later on, they really do move away from the Xander character. And then it eventually gets to the point where like in season three, you've got Xander being, it's like, well, what's my part in this group. I don't really understand. But yeah, to start with, when it is this very small group of people, they do focus on him a lot. And unfortunately, all of that is not so good. (laughs) I do see a continuing theme with Xander here, though, where he talks when he's going to ask Buffy out, he's like, I have to be a man and do this. There's a lot of toxic masculinity when it comes to Xander. And I think that was also... I was thinking about this after we recorded the previous episodes, but I think that's part of his reasoning in his head for why he has to go with Buffy to get Jesse in the earlier episodes, Mm -hmm. because that's what a man would do. He has to stick by his bro and be a man. And so that this seems to be a continuing thing. Obviously, don't know Joss Whedon, but since he's the author identifier character here... Maybe this says something about Joss. I don't know. (laughs) 
we can psychoanalyze Xander. And I mean, like, I do right. think that there is like this element of him needing to prove himself as a man. And I mean, that can even tie to his interest in Buffy, who at this point, he really does not know very well. No, he just knows Buffy is very powerful. And it's almost like if I can tame this powerful woman, then I shall truly be a man. And we're going to get hints and we're going to get it confirmed later on well down the road that Xander comes from a really dysfunctional background. He really does. Right. So going back and watching these, knowing what I know is going to happen in the future. Oh my God, he drives me crazy and I want to punch him. And sometimes that's me wanting to punch the writers for writing something like that. Yeah. But then I also sort of can re-examine and say, well, he has not learned healthy ways to deal with people maybe yeah. a little bit. But yeah, right now I just want to punch him. I can't say I blame you. <laughs> So in this episode, we are introduced to a very important character in Buffy the Vampire Slayer lore, and that is Amy Madison, played by Elizabeth Ann Allen, who will appear in seven more episodes after this. That's Elizabeth Ann Allen playing her. She was in many more played by a rodent. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know the rodent's name, okay? Like, they've never said what the name of that rat was. I assume its Um, name is There's probably several. (laughs) But very important part of the show is introduced for the first time. Friend of Willow's from when they were in middle school. One thing really struck me when they first introduced her to the show, and that is who on earth immediately before saying anything to one of their old friends says you've lost a lot of weight. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's the first thing Willow says to her. Yeah. Hi, Amy, you lost a lot of weight. And it's like, my God, who says it like that? You can find ways around that, but you don't say it so plainly. That's really just hammy writing in a way. I didn't, you know, I didn't even think about that. I mean, I do think that they're trying to set up the changes that Amy has gone through that will pay off at the end of the episode. But yeah, that was quite ham-fisted. Bad Willow. (laughs) Yeah. No wonder Willow doesn't have any friends other than Xander. (laughs) Although I think she is dressing better in this episode. She is definitely dressing better. It's like they dressed her the way they did in the first story, just to establish that she's frumpy and out of the social circles, and then just abandoned that completely. Yeah, I mean, her dressing is always unusual, but it's not as plain and the softer side of Sears right. as it ever is again in that first episode, except when they call it back later on. We can probably chalk it up to the fact that she's known Buffy for uh, a little while now. Maybe Buffy has come over to her place and been like, okay, we're throwing this out and this out and this out. And also maybe the costume designer hadn't quite gotten a beat on that character and her quirkiness and her quirky personality and how that was really going to play with Alison Hannigan's, how she was going to bring something to it. Because obviously those costumes were picked before anything had ever been shot. Yeah, her sense of fashion is wacky. And I could probably say a million things about her fuzzy sweaters, but it's definitely not bland as it is in that first episode. I mean, I do think Willow's general style, they they describe it very well on the show. And it's the crazy birthday cake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's exactly how Willow dresses. So I think something that really struck me in watching the opening after Amber has caught fire is, and this never occurred to me before, but how intelligent Buffy is. Because what happens has absolutely nothing to her being the Slayer. Anybody could have done what Buffy did in that grabbing the banner and putting out Amber. Right. But Buffy's the only one who actually has the frame of mind to actually do that. I know a lot of people will give Buffy a hard time for not being smart 
or for only being the muscle. But seeing that, it's like, no, Buffy is super smart, knows how to work in a crisis. Oh, absolutely. As the Slayer, I mean, she is used to taking action. Yeah. And that's the thing. Everyone else is just sort of like, my God, what's going on? And she's just like, oh, I have to do something. I mean, really, anyone who thinks she's not smart is really not paying attention. I think a lot of people who say that she is not smart are people who are almost just looking at the log line of the show. And it's like, well, here's this blonde girl named Buffy. So, of course, she's not going to be very smart. And they do throw some jokes in about Buffy not being very intelligent. But then they also later on put in stuff about how Buffy does very well on tests, actually does critical thinking in school. And I think I said this in the first two episodes about how she's so ingenious about the way she goes after things. She's really inventive. Like, I am probably one of the biggest Buffy defenders because I just really love her as a character so, 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 so much. And I think she's really a smart young lady. Oh, God, that's showing my age. She's a smart young lady. Uh, (laughs) But she is. She's very smart. Her ingenuity really shows through. And and it isn't always just because she's the slayer and has slayer powers or reflexes. It's because she's a very intuitive person. She can read things really well. She's the one that figures out at the end of the episode, she looks at Catherine, Amy and Catherine's body and says, Amy, are you Amy? She picks up on the clues and she deduces what's going on. And it's very impressive. And it's actually very good on the director's part, how the director shot it to pick up on the little moments that Buffy is able to suss out. Now, when you mentioned the word deducing, I, of course, thought of Sherlock. I actually have a note written down that says Sherlock would not be impressed by Buffy's sneaking skills when she gets the hair and she has to throw the potion on her to see if she turns blue. Yeah, no, that was pretty bad. That was pretty bad, which are also directorial choices. It just didn't work. But my note was Sherlock would not be impressed with you right now. I also have a note at what kind of science teacher is that that had no reaction to like a student spilling. Yeah. But I mean, granted, something serious does happen like immediately after that. Right. Well, it's just like, here's something in a beaker. I'm going to spill it all over your skin. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what kind of science class that is, where one side of the class is doing bio and the other side is doing chemistry. Yeah. I'm like, what? (laughs) And also, newts are not frogs. Well, that too. Newts are not frogs. (laughs) They use that several times in the course of the series, talking about substitutions for newt size. I'm sure I'll pull a quote. Anya has a great quote about it about four seasons from now. Yeah, once they get the magic shop. Once they get the magic shop. I don't know. I've never cast a spell so i'm not sure right if it's a good substituted olive oil for butter but i don't know about (laughs) frog's eyes for newt's eyes so we haven't talked at all about joyce in this episode who is a fairly large presence i would say Mm -hmm. you know at this point in the series and i know it's episode three joyce makes me crazy not in the same way that xander makes me crazy but at this Mm -hmm. point joyce is and the way she's written yes Mm -hmm. because obviously this is an episode about mothers and daughters and those relationships Mm -hmm. there are a lot of parallels whereas with amy and Catherine, Catherine is just plain evil and abuses obviously verbally and you know switching bodies could definitely be counted as physically abusive towards her daughter but at the same time this is a monster of the week episode so there's not a lot of complex motivation behind Catherine actions except for I want to be a cheerleader again whereas Joyce there is some real 
undermining things that she does to Buffy. Yeah. Yes. Very undermining a lot of Buffy's self-confidence issues, I think, come out of this. And again, I want to mm-hmm. stress that she's not the worst mother ever. Obviously, I w- worked in social services. I've seen way oh. worse mothers. Oh, no, of course not. But She's just neglectful. And I think, you know, at this point in the episode, she has no idea that Buffy auditioned for the cheerleading team. Right. That has nothing to do with Buffy's bad behavior, because at this point, Buffy has had no bad behavior yeah. since they've moved to Sunnydale. Right, but Joyce assumes that she will. I think Joyce, not actively, but I think there's a certain amount of Joyce subconsciously at least blaming Buffy for their change in circumstances. Certainly, the movie is not canonical, but they do make references to it, and uh, Joyce makes almost a reference to it. Now, the way Buffy's parents were portrayed in the movie is incredibly neglectful. Buffy's mother gets Buffy's boyfriend's name wrong, and Buffy says that she doesn't even think her mother knows her name. And then later on in this series, Joyce says, certainly I'm not the social butterfly that I was when we were in LA. So I take that to mean that actually that Joyce has changed a lot and that part of what we saw in the movie is still canon, that she had started out being very neglectful and actually throughout this series, we will see her grow from being a horrible mother to one who is, spoiler alert, whose death we all mourn in season five. She does grow. She grows up as Buffy grows up. And obviously these first two seasons, she has no idea her kid is a slayer. She just sees her getting in trouble. But this episode in particular, because again, Buffy has been in no trouble that Joyce knows about it. And even at the big end, which I think is supposed to be a moment of contrast between what Catherine's done for Amy, she comes to Buffy and says, you know what? I realized I don't get it, that I'll never get it because you're 16. And I'm yelling, you're not trying hard enough. And then because of my background, I'm like, and y'all need to go to some family therapy because you have a communication problem. You know, she doesn't seem as interested in her kid's daily life as emotional state as in just keeping her out of trouble instead of trying to understand the underlying root cause of the trouble which she can't because vampire slayer but another parent the other thing is freaking me out that i'm the same age as joyce as i am the same age as giles but a little less with giles because giles does not have actual biological children but because you know christine sutherland was 42 at the time of these episodes since we were talking about joyce just to go to as you said the other mother in this episode i really liked the exposition on Catherine at the beginning of this episode when Catherine is talking about herself about just how awesome she is and you kind of because of the twist at the end it seems like oh well they're just setting up that this is Amy's Freudian excuse for doing all of this bad stuff but then when you look back at it after you have seen it it's like wow Catherine is just going on and on about how fucking awesome she is. She's quite a good actress because obviously Amy has these quirks and she even says that she doesn't really want to be on the cheerleading squad and I made a note saying wait when does she do the body switch is this real Amy or is this? I was wondering that myself when does it happen? She had actually already done it because Mm -hmm. Amy as Catherine has a line that a few months ago, I woke up in my mother's bed. I would presume that you lost a lot of weight that Catherine put the Amy body on a strict diet. And that's why Amy has suddenly slimmed down and everything. Yeah, I was trying to figure out and suss it all out and then reheard that line about it being months and went, oh, and actually, I think that really good writing and actually good on Elizabeth Ann Allen's part. You really don't get it until you go to that house. There's no tell. There's absolutely no tell. Elizabeth Ann Allen did a very good job of hiding the fact that she was talking about someone who was her. And then I 
I have to give Robin Riker, who played oh Catherine, great also performance props because she was so good when she's in the house before they actually reveal that it's Amy and she is playing Amy playing her mother and it's just such a very nuanced performance and then when they finally reveal that it is Amy just her fear of her mother it's like I really struck me so hard just holy cow this she is absolutely terrified of this woman and then the flip when she flips into being Catherine in her own body again she's scary and so yeah, yeah i have to get robin Riker mad props that was a really good performance one time appearance but she was very memorable considering that this is such because it is a quaint episode but she does mark her territory it's also a nice bit of structure because they keep switching up what we think is going on we start out with oh amy is trying to please her mother but Amy's okay and then we see the scene where Amy comes home and we see that her mother is frightened of her so we think oh Amy really isn't that great and her mother is not the way she paints her and then switch up again and find out that it's in fact Amy in her mother's body so it's nice that they it's like you've got red herrings but they're red herrings that pay off I'm surprised they never had this writer work for the show again because it's really quite a good episode that will probably happen a lot in the first season I'll have to look through it again but I seem to recall that other than Joss there was a lot of change over with writers I think trying to settle on things we don't have Marty or Jane oh no not at all the regular mutant enemy folks around yet David Greenwald will turn up shortly but yeah a lot of the other writers I don't think show up till much later just looking through my DVD book yeah David Greenwald's the only one who really stands out to me as somebody who wrote many many episodes wasn't he the co-exec on Angel yes yeah basically David did everything on Angel that was kind of his baby they're listed as co-creators we always forget that yes Joss was part of Angel but Greenwald also was the co-creator of that particular series so yeah Greenwald I'm not surprised he comes along in season one but yeah you don't get those for those of you listening at home (laughs) that are not as obsessed David Greenwald Marty Noxon Rebecca Rand Kirchner and Jane Espenson are writers that worked Andrew Goddard who's from New Mexico thank you very much are writers that really you can, they have very strong work and very strong voices within the Buffyverse and we'll most likely when we get to their episodes we'll be pointing out this is a Marty episode this is a Jane episode because they do have very specific styles and you can tell which if there is an episode about Jonathan you know you're watching a Jane you're watching Espenson a Jane Espenson one. episode yeah absolutely she's one of my favorites though jane espenson is always oh i adore her absolutely but back to this episode absolutely (laughs) Uh, we also get a lot of cordelia in this episode the one thing that sort of set me off this time i don't think this happened last time i watched but cordelia kind of you know she's always kind of a pain in the ass but here she like crosses over the line into being threatening yeah and that's like really not what she'll develop into i mean like this is having of course having seen more of her it seems really out of character it's like to be that directly threatening there's this amazing fake out in this episode where you got the spooky music and amy at her locker and you think it's going to be some kind of monster and then it's just cordy (laughs) yeah 
Well, it is kind of a monster. Well, yes. And it's Cordy coming out and threatening her, which the mean girl in high school is scarier than monsters in many, many ways. And even at this point, I kind of adore Cordelia for her bluntness. And I think even back when I first saw it, I'm like, she is awful, but she's awfully great. Another one of my favorite lines in probably the whole series is, why would somebody want to harm Cordelia? (laughs) Maybe because they met her. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) willow is also starting to speak up (laughs) yeah willow says something sarcastic to cordelia in the hallway at some point you know that's something the willow of welcome to the hellmouth wouldn't have done i think so she's starting to sort of come out of her shell and and speak up for herself and that's because of buffy buffy's also super strong so if cordelia messes with her she now has backup uh which i think bolsters her to be able to do that but yeah willow's already starting to grow and xander will grow a lot over the course of the series but right now he has a lot more growing to do he does have a lot more growing to do he needs to move past the obsession with buffy we're probably going to be bitching and moaning about xander until about halfway through season two maybe season three by that time he'll get over it yeah sort of there's always an underlying but we'll get to that later so i did find cordelia's scene in the car a little bit puzzling in that it seemed like a lot of the problems cordelia was having actually in the car weren't things that would be affected by eyesight right if you were having that much trouble why would you why wouldn't you hit the brakes that was my thing is because again out of character because cordelia's yeah kind of ditzy but not wholly incompetent and stupid yeah so it's like why are you continuing to drive why aren't you saying to the driving instructor i'm having trouble seeing i just took driving lessons two years ago Mm -hmm. if i was having some sort of problem where things were compromised i had to call my teacher up and said i can't I have to reschedule. I can't do this today because of, you know, whatever. Because it's not safe to drive if your vision's blurry and you can't just say, I don't feel well. Tell him, can't see. And she does tell the teacher, I don't know if I should drive today. And then he gives her the whole rigmarole about, well, you've already failed twice. You're going to be taking a bus to college, which I think is a whole theme now that I'm thinking about it of the show, which is negligent adults. Yeah. Joyce. I have my issues with her in these first couple seasons, but she's not as she goes on as negligent and Giles is definitely. But Joss's original plan was to not have any parents in the world. There was just going to be Giles. And that there was, was just going to be Giles and, you know, teachers and Snyder. Oh. You were just going to see all of the teachers from like the knee down and they were all going to be tubas. Wah, 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 wah. No, not quite. But it's a Charlie Brown slaying. It's the great slayer, Charlie Brown. <laughs> but yeah one of the big things is one that nobody in sunnydale is paying attention to any of the supernatural stuff or if they are they're pushing it so far down like if it hadn't blown up at the end of the, the series i would love to go be a therapist in sunnydale that would be a fascinating job thank you very much but yeah adults are not necessarily the trustworthy people that have the intuition it's the kids and giles and always giles always always giles oh another important introduction in this episode giles is car yes the peugeot oh yes 
I absolutely squealed when I saw that car again because it's been so long since I've rewatched the episode. So actually getting the chance to see it. And I'm like, oh. So do you think he bought that when he got over here? Or what are your opinions on that, MC? And David? I don't know. I'm just glad it's in the world. From a practical standpoint, I would say it would probably be easier to find a Peugeot here than to ship one. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Steering wheel is on the American side. So... Mm. Yeah, but maybe the Watchers Council has a transport budget. Who knows? I- <laughs> maybe. Um, and it's not a very well-running car, right? It's no, always no. doing it's something hinky and it doesn't go very fast. But yeah, I love that car. I love Giles's Peugeot. Was it the fourth season when they got rid of it? When does Dawn show up? Fifth season. Okay, yeah. It's after it's gotten wrecked in a new man with Giles and Spike. So I don't think that's till four, four, maybe five. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) Obviously, witches are going to become a ginormous part of the Buffyverse lore. Yes. Willow, spoiler, spoiler, eventually becomes the most powerful witch in the world. So it becomes an everyday thing. I really find it interesting to see how witches are portrayed in this episode as something otherworldly. Obviously, Amy and Catherine are both normal people, but there is kind of an otherness to the way Catherine is portrayed. I just find it an interesting contrast to what's going to happen later on, where witchcraft is just an everyday thing. And here, well, I mean, they also make mentions of sacred spaces, and there are books, and everything involves potions. And Giles tells a big, fat, sexy pants on fire lie. Because he says, (laughs) It's his first casting. This is first casting. I'm like, really, Rupert? Yeah, I was... Sexy pants on fire. Even without knowing anything else, it's just like, really? Watchers don't learn to cast a spell during their training? I don't buy it. I know, right? Yeah, I don't think so. And also, speaking of Giles and the adults, not so much being, in this case, neglectful, but not necessarily as competent as you would like. Why does Giles wait until they get to the school to cast the spell to cure Buffy. He really could have done it anywhere. Right, um, he could have done it anywhere. And of course, another not so bright thing is if the spell is going to get rid of all of Catherine's spells, which they which it appears not to. Not tying up Catherine's right, body. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, she's right there. <laughs> <laughs> this, this doesn't seem like a good plan. No, it really isn't. And Buffy's dying, so it's like... Going to chalk it up to Giles being so worried about the fact that Buffy's only got a little while left that he's not thinking terribly clearly about what's going to happen. There are ways of explaining it but it's again it's going back to when you were talking about the adults being neglectful but in this case not neglectful but also just not children tend to think oh adults know what they're doing and sometimes they don't and we see that even with the most competent people we see them make mistakes they're not paragons it's a great part of this show is it really does make everybody kind of really human and Giles's pressure point is always Buffy even from the beginning here oh, it's yes. always always Buffy and that just grows and grows and grows and grows until he well we'll get to that when we get to that but she definitely is the focal point and so some of the mistakes that Giles makes are because of his feelings about Buffy and mm-hmm. his oh, yes. role as her protector slash partner I do have a note here on Giles which does say it just says Giles you liar I know yeah again I just said it but mine says your sexy pants are on fire <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm obsessed with Rupert Giles, like super duper obsessed with Rupert Giles. Yeah, I also have a note in here. It's like, my God, Giles looks so hot. 
<laughs> I know, right? And there's a line at the very beginning where she talks about, well, maybe you should get a girlfriend if you weren't so old. Or he could get a yes. girlfriend if he wasn't so old. And I'm like, pick me. Pick me. <laughs> right, I'm right over. Pick me. Pick me. I will totally. Uh, sorry, honey, when you listen to this, it's fiction. I love you the best. But Giles, Giles is always. But you volunteer as tribute. But I volunteer as tribute for love of Giles because he's really. He's Giles. <laughs> Like I'm giggling like a schoolgirl. He's not my type, but he's terrific. Giles is good people. He's smart. He's well read. He glasses. I don't know. He's just he's just got it all going on. And he sings like the heavens. Giles has a lot of good qualities. Just since we're on shallow notes right now, I will add another one. The outfit that Buffy wears at the end of the episode, that brown mini dress. It's so 90s, but I'm so in love with it. The one I wrote down is Amy's plaid pants with the tie-dye shirt and the pink hoodie. Oh, yeah. That's like what girls were wearing in my head high school except for the shirts were hyper color oh yeah i remember those t-shirts that read your body temperature and you could put a hand on it but all it ever ended up doing is showing your pit stains (laughs) your your pits being a solely separate color from the actual t-shirt but yeah buffy's outfits are really 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 90s at this point but apparently like that's my jam (laughs) because i love all of her mini dresses in first season do you think it's because you like bonded on those star trek outfits outfits from the original series early in life or something mc like a baby duck you imprinted on short skirts and boots or something i don't know i mean it's always possible (laughs) i'm psychoanalyzing you the other thing i wanted to point out is sunnydale high school has gryffindor colors it does yeah there's gryffindor so my harry potter gryffindor scarf that i've made also would work well as a sunnydale high school razorbacks thing yeah if california high schools had scarves (laughs) true true i mean this is not one of the episodes where the writing generally jumps out at you but there are a couple of really nice bits of writing the opening scene with giles going on about the cult that buffy's joining which is a nice bit of humor when we see oh cheerleader more seriously later when buffy is under the curse and dying and giles is hesitating in telling her how much time she has. And she just goes, truth, please. That's, I think, something in their relationship that will come up again and again as time goes on, is where he will be trying to protect her and she will just go, no, just give it to me straight. When Amy's still in Catherine's body, she said I was wasting my youth, so she took it is just a really nice bit of dialogue. It's a great line and Robin Riker really delivered the hell out of it. The thing that really jumped out at me as really great writing and great directing was the ending of this episode. I consider the ending of this episode iconic. It's Amy who says, you know, wherever she was going to send me, I was never going to cause trouble again. So we won't have to deal with her again. And then you see that she's stuck in the cheerleading trophy. Oh, it's so great. That is really, really iconic. And such a great ending. And it really, it sticks out as one of the great endings of Buffy. I mean, there are many great Absolutely. endings of Buffy. For an episode that is not like a milestone episode... I do think that it's very high up. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting in this first season, and we'll see it more as we go along. They do a lot of these odd little tags, like the cheerleader trophy. There's one where some eggs are going to be there later. 
And it is very reminiscent of some of those little tags they put on the end of the X-Files when Mulder and Scully think that they've solved their case, but there's something else lingering that they may or may not come back to. It's very reminiscent of that for me. And they sort of stopped that at the end of this first season. It's a very common horror movie trope, thinking there's going to be a sequel. There will be something at the end where it's like more obviously with the eggs in the next episode. The witch is the only one that actually gets called back later on it does yeah in i believe it's phases oz is looking at it and says that's oh yeah these eyes follow you wherever you go that's right it does happen in teacher's pet and it happens in invisible girl that you have these tags that nothing ever happens with them yeah now, i granted i do think this one was a little easier to follow up on than those ones oh for sure the other thing i wanted to talk about is and i know it's because the writers are trying to be clever and put references in there but like Buffy knows so much about pop culture stuff that you wouldn't think she knows about right she makes a reference in this one to Mommy Dearest, which oh yeah, I would have known what that is at 15 but I was hanging out with drag queens who love Joan Crawford but like yeah, no, I just I think it's really interesting. There's there are a couple of these that you're like, where would you get the context for that? Yeah. So I just chalk it up to Buffy being incredibly smart. I was wondering if she really would have known Macho Man. Um, I would expect her to know YMCA, but not Macho Man. Macho Man, right. Yeah, I could see her knowing it. And let's also just talk about how just adorable. Sarah Michelle Gellar. Oh, oh, yes. she was, oh, she was so Man. great. She was doing Macho Man. And then her next line is quality juice, not from concentrate. It's really, it's so cute. I would get that she would know Macho Man because maybe her mother plays. Right. Sometimes I get that kids will know more about older music, but like the reference to Mommy Dearest. And then there's one several seasons from now where she makes a reference to Waiting for Godot. Yeah. And you're like... <laughs> That's obviously a writer's showing us their pop culture skills. And uh, yeah, she's very, very cute when she's yeah, that, basically that's a nice, drunk. That's a nice performance from her, that scene. I do have a note on that. It's like, to me, Amy Spell and Buffy looks like me during a manic episode. Ah, yeah, that's... <laughs> huh. Um, but do you sing Macho Man? Uh, I've never sung Macho Man, but I have sung things like Uptown Funk and... <laughs> Oh, see, I just do that on a daily basis. <laughs> like I just I sing everywhere. Like I have to remind myself the world is not a musical, but that's just me and who I am. So and Macho Man, I always end up singing that for three or four days after I watch this episode. <laughs> I have sung Macho Man before. We'll have to do it at karaoke sometime. In terms of other music in this episode, we have Twilight Zone by Two Unlimited during the cheerleading tryouts. And count the time by the children when Buffy and Joyce are talking at the end of the episode. So obviously no scenes in the bronze, so no bronze music. And also, we're still not to bands that I actually recognize. I think it takes a while to get to bands that I actually... I don't think it's going to be till season two when it's finally going to be like, hey, I know them. I know that band, right. There, As time goes on and it became a more popular show, there were some... None of them were like huge... Except for Amy Mann, she's pretty huge. But yeah, yeah they're still like, and I think that was one of the th cool things about the show is they did want to showcase indie bands mm -hmm. because they could get music clearance better for that than having to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's that practical element, but yeah. I think Buffy is one of the few shows I know of from the time that never really had problems with its music rights. It came to doing DVDs and Netflix. 
Yeah, I think we talked about that on one of the other podcasts. It did come up. We, we talked about Dawson's Creek a little bit and, and all that stuff. And I think mm-hmm. they were really, really smart to go mm-hmm. that way. I mean, it also just makes sense because even like Amy Mann, you're kind of pushing it with the idea that is she really going to play at the bronze? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. You know, no. But, you know, I've seen her in very small venues, so you never know. By that point, you're like, wait, is the bronze a teen club? Or do you drink there? It, the bronze changes based on the needs of the writers in any particular situation. So as the characters get older, the bronze has an older crowd. Yeah, actually, I've seen Amy Mann in concert several times, and I've been about as close away as the bronze stage. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe she shows up in Sunnydale. Bizarrely, this odd confluence on the uh, cruise that John. Jonathan Colton does every year. This year, Amy Mann's going to be on it, and Nerf Herder is coming. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's great. I, I was only like, know oh my. One song. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I was looking at the guests, and I was like, Nerf Herder's coming? I mean, <laughs> Amy Mann's been coming. She and Ted Leo are now the both, and they've been on the cruise for the last couple of years. In fact, at some point, I realized, huh, I'm sitting right in front of Amy Mann, right? That's interesting. Oh, I would die. Oh, I love odd. her so much. <laughs> yeah. And Jonathan Colton does this cruise? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love him. He's fantastic. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he does a cruise every year. And he invites Very musicians cool. and science fiction writers and etc. Out there in listener land, Jonathan Colton is also the co-host of Ask Me Another from NPR. Yes, he is. He's amazing. Really great. Good stuff. Good musician. A lot of fun. Yes, well worth checking out. But back to Buffy. <laughs> okay, so I think we're actually reaching the point of any final thoughts on the witch. Why is Buffy the only cheerleader who has black shoes? That's a very good question. I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually, I did notice that. Uh, I was like, did she not you know, like have time to pick up white shoes? The only thing I can think of is that being under the curse, she was just out of it and put on the wrong shoes. But it just seems like an odd continuity error, unless it was intentional. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wondered if they thought that from far back, you might not be able to spot which one was Buffy because they are all kind of blonde, you know, wafy. But they, they don't shoot it that way. <laughs> yeah. No. no, they don't. My final thought is you actually, a lot of the credits clips come from this episode. Yeah. The kitty, the credits kitty. Oh, right. Yeah. Then I think there is a shot in the opening where they show all the cheerleaders cheering in shoes and stuff. So yeah, that's two things that ended up in the credits from this one episode. And I'm pretty sure they also showed the bubbling cauldron. They did show the, yeah, the bubbling cauldron mm-hmm. and credits kitty, as I like to call the kitty. That's yes. nice. I like that. I'm stealing that. Credits kitty. Overall, I think it's a really solid episode that probably gets overlooked as things improve in quality, but it's one of those ones that I don't ever skip. If I'm going to do a rewatch, yeah. I don't skip this one. I find it a lot of fun, and I find the subtle growth and the building of that team. It's, it's really starting to set us up for what we're going to see and really get into later. It's definitely one of those, if you're looking at the series as a whole, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but as an individual episode, it's actually really good, and when you stop and look at it, it really does develop the series Mm -hmm. but it doesn't for some reason it doesn't jump out at you i don't know why it's definitely not in my top 10 favorite episodes of all time but and it and it really sets the tone and it sort of sets up this first season with a lot of the monster of the week kind of plot lines we haven't become as serialized as this point and for something that was, in essence, the second episode anyone's going to see, it gives you enough background into that world, enough to bring you back till the next week. Right. I mean, it wouldn't be in my top 10, but in terms of the first season, it's probably in my top four. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first season, I mean, we're probably going to be seeing it 
a lot where we're going to be saying it's like, well, it's an okay episode. It does kind of get lost amongst like the series as a whole. They were still trying to find their feet. Yes. And I do think that it shows in this. They're trying to establish the world, trying to establish the mythology. And I think they did an okay job doing it with this one. Yeah, I think they did fine, but they won't yeah, really. Obviously, they're, sort they're of still trying to figure things out. Hit but it. it worked really well for me. They won't hit it really until season two, I think. Yeah. Like, it won't like gel. It's, yeah. it's good, but it won't yeah. quite be what we think of as Buffy until season two. Yeah, and I know a lot of people tell, oh, just skip that first season eight. I, you know, no. No. it's like skipping nine on Doctor Who. Yeah. You don't skip no, it. No, no, it's, no. it's part of the world. You can skip the first season on Parks and Rec, but that's the only time it's ever acceptable. I even like the first season in some ways, but... I mean, there are some of these episodes we're going to cover that I'm going to watch again that I do frequently skip over, but then there's some that I really don't. They're really innocent at this point, so if you want to go back and watch some Buffy that's a little lighter in tone... Because it does get progressively darker while still having oh, humor. Yes. There's some really fun ones. Just flat out fun Monster of the Week storytelling. Yeah, it's a lot easier, I think, to watch an episode from the first season and then not watch any other Buffy. While the later seasons, you really have to marathon the entire season. Right. And where we are now, all the pieces won't even come together until about mid-season. Because Angel isn't really quite a part of this yet. Yeah, David Boreanaz isn't even in this episode, and he's not, he's recurring, he's not even a main cast member at this point. We don't see him again until episode seven, I believe. No, he shows up before that. Oh, wait, yeah, no, you're right. He shows up in, like, Never Kill a Boy on the First Date? I don't know, I'd have to check it out, but he does show up a few times. Yeah, no, actually, you're right. No, wait, he's actually in the next one, I believe. Oh, is he? Okay. Yeah, he won't become a solid part of the series yeah. until Angel. He's going to be the mysterious man who shows up and then says something cryptic and then goes away. Right. Right. And then we get to Angel and then it starts falling into place. That'll be, I think, the beginning of when we get real Buffy. That's a pretty big reveal. I saw it coming, but I'm pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm laughing at myself. But a lot of people didn't see it coming. They were just trying to figure out what his deal was. The, the relationship between Buffy and Angel will be a, a core element of the series. Even after Angel leaves, there will be detritus of that forever. Well, uh, next time we'll be reviewing Teacher's Pet. So until next time, grr, arg. Grr, arg. Grr, arg. We'd like to thank everyone who downloaded the podcast and an extra special thanks to everyone who shared it and liked it on social media. A special shout out to the lovely Day. You can check out her podcast, Nerdisms with Day. Link will be in the show notes. You can find us all over the web. We're on both iTunes and Stitcher, and we've also uploaded onto YouTube. Just search for Return to the Hellmouth. Be sure to leave a rating for us. You can leave us comments at our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on Tumblr and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, or on Twitter at Hellmouth Return, or email at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read comments on the show. See you on Tuesday for Teacher's Pet. Grr. Arg.